Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very special episode of the Salem Oracle Podcast. Today's episode features our first guest, Dustin Holden of Dustin Can Read and Watch, and he joins me for a conversation about the book Conversion by Katherine Howe. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Today we are welcoming Dustin Holden to the Salem Oracle podcast. This is the first guest for our show. Um, So Dustin and I became friends through social media, as many people encounter each other on Instagram and whatnot, and he's also a podcaster. Um, So his show is Dustin Can Read and Watch. So welcome, Dustin. Hi, thank you for welcoming me and onto your show. (laughs) Yes, thanks for being here. Um, Before we get into our conversation for today. I'm curious if you could let listeners know a little bit about yourself and what your podcast is about. Sure. Um, Yes, like you said, it's Dustin Can Read and Watch. Originally, it was just Dustin Can Read, and then I added the watch. Um, I read middle grade and YA books and talk about them with guests. Sometimes we'll recap a full book. If it's a little, little newer, we'll just talk about it in general and what we thought about it. And the watch side is I watch current television shows most of the time with guests, and we discuss them as well and, you know, talk about our favorite parts, kind of sell them to the audience a little bit. Um, and I also do another monthly thing where I'll have guests on and we'll just talk about anything in general, pop culture, life, you know, current events, everything. And uh, it's really fun. I really like doing it. And, I, you know, going to continue on for a little while and see how it goes from there. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, I will agree. It's a fun podcast. And I we had already been following each other on social media, but it was when you did a Fear Street review for the Fear Street trilogy on Netflix. Oh, That's yeah. what drew me in. I was like, okay, I got to listen to this. And then I saw you had done one on the Babysitter's Club. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I liked old school stuff. But, you know, the fun thing was, was that, you know, I'm glad that they brought back you know, Fear Street and whatnot. Like I, and you've listened to that episode. I wasn't the hugest fan of the trilogy, yeah. although I loved the books they were based on, or it was trying to take from um, the Saga series, which had all the witchcraft and you know, Salem-y type stuff going on. And um, except in that one, they burn people at the stake. Uh, <laughs> and uh, which I learned from you was not historically accurate as far nope. as the U.S. goes. <laughs> that never um, happened in Salem. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, of course, like you said, Babysitter's Club. I love doing throwbacks. Or even if they have newer books that come out. Like the one I read for the Babysitter's Club was a prequel to the Babysitter's Club. But it came out in the 2000s as a kind of anniversary type thing that Anne M. Martin put out. Um but yeah, I love uh, doing things that are throwbacks to things I grew up with or was around. I wasn't exposed to Babysitter's Club as a kid because I just thought, oh, Babysitter's, ew, I don't want to read that. But <laughs> now I really love it. So, <laughs> and <Yes>. yeah, I'm. I'm <laughs> well, and believe it or not, there's actually a super special. It's just making me think about, no, it's a mystery special where the babysitters go to Salem, Massachusetts. Oh, really? I never yes. saw that one. And they have to solve a mystery about, I think it's like a missing um, a missing jewel or crystal or something like that that they have to hunt down. Oh, so, yeah. okay. Yeah, that does sound like one of those mystery specials. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
That's awesome. I love that. I love when when shows or shows or books or whatever kind of go off the beaten path that they would normally be on, do something supernatural or, you know, a little more just, I don't know, outrageous that they, you know, wouldn't expect them to be put in a situation like that. I think that's really fun. So I, I really like that a lot. Yeah. Cool. So, yes, everybody listen to Dustin Can Read and Watch. Um, now, that's one of the reasons I thought we could talk about conversion today. Um, this book by Catherine Howe, it is a YA novel that brings in the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so since you usually focus on YA media, I thought it'd be a perfect fit to bring together, you know, all your insight around that kind of media with what I study, the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so I'm curious, had you ever encountered Catherine Howe's work before you read this book, Conversion? No, I had not. I, I heard you talk about conversion on your other podcast, and I, I looked her up, and I was like, oh, I'd never heard of it. I mean, more of her works are when I, after I'd graduated high school, so it's not something I probably would have looked at for a while. I didn't get back into reading YA or middle grade fiction until the past few years, really, at reading it all. You know, I kind of got out of it for a while. And then, uh, but this seems really interesting I'm, I'm, since I, I like this book, so I, I definitely would check her out further and read some of other works yeah it i think this was her second book her first was the physic book of deliverance dane which is not ya um but it does deal with like magic and witchcraft and connections back to 17th century new england okay and actually the main character in that shows up in conversion it's on a a, the main character's um coming to give a lecture or like a talk at harvard um, so it's like a little Easter that. egg. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yep. So, so that was her first book. And then she did Conversion. And Catherine Howe, I love her. I got to meet her once. That's how I found out about um, Conversion was I had done this talk on the Salem Witch Trials. And then I got an email from the editor of one of the editors at Penguin. And he was like, oh, I saw you did this talk about the Salem Witch Trials, I was wondering if you would be interested in getting a free copy of this new book that just came out, The Penguin Book of Witches, that has like primary sources and uh, information about all these different primary documents. And also the editor for that, Catherine Howe, is going to be giving this little free talk if you want to go. And I was like, okay, cool. I don't know how this person even found me. (laughs) Witches, you say? I'm in. (laughs) Witches? Okay, excellent. Free book about witches. And I went, and it was like this little bookstore in Brooklyn down in the basement, and Catherine Howe was there, and she was talking about, specifically about the new book that came out, but she mentioned conversion. And I remember it just really captured my attention, and it ended up being about three or four years later that it popped back into my head. I picked up a copy, and I was hooked. And it was actually one of the things that brought me back into studying the Salem Witch Trials after having a pretty fair, fairly long gap um, where I wasn't really researching it. So I love Catherine Howe. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. I was wondering the whole time while reading, I was like, I wonder if this is historically accurate. It sounds like maybe she took some liberties, but for the most part, it sounds, from what I've been hearing on Illusory Time, it sounds pretty accurate to what I've been hearing. So I wonder, you know, what Maya has to say about that. So <laughs> Yes, and we will dive into that for sure. And I, But I will say that a lot of it is historically accurate. And that's one of the things I love about her. She's pretty meticulous about it. And she does take some liberties, but I feel like she does it in a really conscientious way. Um, So I appreciate that. 
Yeah, so I'm also curious before we really get into the book, into the details, like what's your level of knowledge around the Salem Witch Trials coming into this? Okay, other than your podcast, really not much at all. I will say my first, my first exposure to it, which I know you're all about pop culture witches and whatnot, but the first time I ever really was exposed to like any kind of witch trial-esque type of thing was Dark Shadows. I don't know if you've ever seen Dark Shadows. No, I haven't. It was a soap opera in the 60s, and it was kind of like the precursor to Passions. Okay, Passions that one I know more, about. <laughs> yeah, Passions was more like intentionally campy. Dark Shadows was being serious, and they had campy things happen. So when you watch it, you're like, oh, you can see somebody, like, a, you know, a boom mic comes down, or there's, you know, because they had to make it really fast. They only had a certain amount of time they can, like, record these episodes. So, so things would go wrong, or they would mess up lines, or... And they would have, you know, it was mainly based around the Johnny Depp movie. Don't watch the Johnny Depp movie. Do not watch it. It's horrible. It's not a good representation of the show, in my opinion. Um, But I didn't watch the 60s Dark Shadows first. It came out in 1991 as a, quote, revival, which we would call a reboot now. Um, Completely new cast and everything. Joseph Gordon-Levitt was in it as a little child. He's like 10. Uh, I'm writing this down. (laughs) Yes, <laughs> must watch. And it's only Dark had twelve Shadows. episodes. It only had twelve episodes, and it, they they said it was a mini series, but they left it off on a cliffhanger. And it was because of like the Gulf War and whatnot. It got preempted a lot, so it didn't really catch a following. And so, but it was really good, and I really loved it. It's really melodramatic, it's over the top. Um, but at one point in the show, the main character, who's like a governess, who comes to this house to teach Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character. Um, she ends up getting thrown back in time to the same town and the same family, but back in the 1700s. And she ends up getting, you know, pointed out she's a witch. And they put her in jail and they look at her clothes. She has a zipper in her clothes. They don't understand that. And they look at, you know, there's a tag saying machine wash and all those like symbols for like what they think that's all, you know, uh, the devil's markings and stuff. And, and they're going to put her on trial, and they put her on trial. They find her guilty, and she's going to get hung, and it's it's really crazy, and it's really fun. That's the first time I was really – I was like, what is going on? I was so enthralled, and, you know, and, of course, the whole soap opera aspect of it all. But uh, that's the first time I really got into, like, witch trial type of things, you know. And then from then on, of course, there was stuff like Hocus Pocus and Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Bewitched and whatnot. So um, – I really, I really, I throw back to Dark Shadows for that. <laughs> Excellent. I'm going to check that out for sure. <laughs> I know it's available on YouTube. Okay. For sure. Um, I, I can probably send you a link. There's not the greatest quality, but that's where you can find it. It used to be on Hulu and they took it away. But uh, for now, as far as that goes, I can send you a link to that. Cool. Excellent. Yeah, I love some good witches in pop culture. It sounds like I need to add that into uh, my repertoire for, <laughs> for all that. So... Yeah, I wanted to um, offer a little bit to listeners about what Catherine Howe's inspiration actually was for writing this book. Because I think it's really interesting. And you don't really find out. She does put an author's note in the book. But if you go into this without knowing it, you, you don't realize that she's actually inspired by real events beyond the Salem Witch Trials. So let's see. I'll do a little overview of what inspired her. And then we can do a summary of the actual book. So... In 2012, there is an outbreak, a mysterious illness in Leroy, New York. 
Uh, so several girls at this high school start exhibiting strange symptoms. They are twitching. They're crying out uncontrollably. They're fainting. They'll lose control of their muscles. And nobody can figure out what's going on with them. So at the same time, this is unfolding in Leroy. And, you know, this is making national news. Uh, Catherine Howe. They said she's a writer, she's a descendant of three accused witches of the Salem Witch Trials, um, and she was also teaching a historical fiction class on The Crucible. So her and her class are all reading The Crucible together, and she starts seeing these parallels between what happened to the girls in Leroy in the present day with what happened to the afflicted girls during the Salem Witch Trials, these strange, uncontrollable, unidentifiable symptoms. So what ends up happening in Leroy, after a lot of different possibilities are explored, uh, the diagnosis of conversion disorder is offered. So basically, this is when people will take psychological stress and then convert it into physical symptoms. All right, so from that event, the book Conversion is born. And in Conversion, we're following two timelines, which you know me, like I love playing with time, past, present, future. So this kind of uh, work where you're going back and forth just speaks to me. Uh, but we follow, in 2012, we've got the town of Danvers, which is what Salem Village renames itself in the 1700s. And it centers around the main character, Colleen Rowley, and she's um, a senior at the prep school St. Jones Academy. So one by one, girls in her school start falling ill. Mysterious symptoms, nobody can figure out what's going on. And all these different explanations are floated throughout the unfolding of the book. And at the same time, we're flashing back in interludes to 1706 to Anne Putnam, who is often seen as one of the ringleaders of the afflicted girls of Salem. And she's telling the story. She's reflecting back on her experiences of the trials, talking to the current minister of Salem Village, because she wants to publicly apologize for her role in the trials and the witch crisis. All right. So like in these interludes, we're seeing the story of Salem through her eyes and we get some major pivotal events, which we can take a closer look at. But the actual beginning of the afflictions, we see the witch cake incident. We see the examinations of some of the first people to be accused. All right. So, yeah, this really pretty incredible way, in my opinion, to look at events in the present and tie them back to the past. Is there anything that you want to add to like that brief introduction to the book? I think that seems like critical that listeners might want to know about. Well, I know that they say at one point that they think it's um, several things and it's not immediately conversion uh, disorder. They, they say that they think it has something to do with the HPV vaccine and that it has something to do with this thing called PANDAS, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with streptococcal illness, which... I'm sorry, an acronym that spells out pandas. It seems a little on the nose. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, and then they go into, I forgot what else. They also say it's environmental. They think it might be something in the water or in the soil or whatever. Um, and, you know, and before they finally land on the conversion disorder part. Um, so I thought that was really interesting uh, how that all played out. And apparently that was how it actually played out in real life. Yeah. And that's what she took that from, so. Yeah, in real time, like in Leroy, that's what was going on. First, they, they're floating all these different ideas about what it could be. And I was actually just, to refresh my memory, I watched like a little interview with some of the girls and the mother, which we see a scene like that uh, created in the book. And, you know, the mom, she's just like, we need an answer. We demand an answer. 
from the school and they feel like nothing is being done but the thing is like they can't find anything to explain what's happening to these girls and they even bring in like Aaron Brockovich gets involved Uh, she's doing testing around the school like looking for some kind of toxic chemicals Uh, Leroy we're talking like upstate western New York Uh, so there was the Jell-O factory actually the original Jell-O factory was in Leroy Um, So there was talk about, oh, there had been, like, spills in the past and something leached into the water and now it's affecting the girls and all these things. But they just, one after another, they ruled things out. And um, interestingly, I think the same thing happens when people try to explain what happened in Salem. They're like, something must have been going on. There's theories that it was ergot poisoning, that everybody was experiencing um, some kind of like hallucinogenic experience that was making them believe and see things that weren't there. That theory has been disproven, but it doesn't matter. People are like, oh, I want to, you know, this is going to explain it. This is going to tell us. The Crucible, we see a story of, um, you know, an affair between Abigail Williams and John Proctor never would have happened. But it's like, oh, somehow at the center of the story is like sex, right? That's sort of like the equivalent to the fears around them getting the HPV vaccine. And yeah, so we, we see these really interesting parallels between what happens in each of these circumstances. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to explore is like how does the depiction of the events of Salem and the experiences of the afflicted girls. We're looking at it through the eyes of Anne Putnam. And that's not usually a perspective we get when we look at the Salem witch trials. We don't have anything, any historical documents written from their perspective. All we have are other people's accounts, other people's perspectives. So, you know, you're coming in with a pretty I think a pretty good knowledge. I mean, you know, if you listen to my podcast about the Salem Witch Trials, (laughs) (laughs) you got a good base of knowledge. What what, did you learn anything or gain any new perspective by looking at things through Anne Putnam's eyes? Definitely. Um, Just seeing in my, I don't know if what was what was real, what was the liberties taken. I don't know, but. From what I'm perceiving, I'm like, okay, this seems to be a case of mob mentality a little bit. Um, and it feels like she was sucked into something that she didn't want to be a part of, but then kind of felt like she had no choice but to be a part of. And it kind of makes you look at the whole situation from the accuser's eyes as, you know, was this real? Was this, was this, was this just somebody just trying to get attention or you know was, were they trying to you know feel important were they trying to get out of doing work like they say in the book you know that kind of thing so it kind of it kind of casts a little more doubt on the whole witchcraft angle you know so I thought that was very interesting and in how um, I like how it was kind of most of her stuff was told through a flashback in her own words so she's telling a reverend reverend green throughout the book in in the interludes um, of what's going, what happened and how it all started and how it came to be and, and how it ended up. And I thought that was very interesting how it was kind of a confession in a way of like, I didn't want it to go this far and it went this far and this is what happened, you know, and I thought that was very interesting. But then you also kind of doubt her a little bit because of the way she acts. You're like, wait, 
what are her motives? You know, what's going on here? I don't understand. Is she trying to get close to this guy? You know, it, it's, it's really strange. So you don't know. You don't know. You, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's head and why things happen the way they do. But it does kind of cast light on certain aspects of what might have happened. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate that there's a slow unfolding so that, you know, when you read about the Salem Witch Trials or you talk about it, you're like, well, how could the girls do this? But when you look at it through the way that um, it's experienced through Anne Putnam's eyes, it's like, it's not all at once. It's observing. She's seeing what's happening with Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. And then she's slowly drawn into it. And then there's this moment where, like, she's like, she becomes a part of it. And everybody's eyes are on her. She's never had that much attention in her life right so you start to see like how you could get drawn into it um and certainly this kind of thing that happens in salem you think about young young women or young people or anybody really in a group and when one person starts to do something it can be really easy to draw other people into it as well what do they call it they called it something uh folet du or something like that oh yeah the the uh history teacher talks about no that. i think it's the, the public uh, health lady put oh, okay. it up first and says something like it happens sometimes when one or two more people or so end up presenting the same mental state or mm-hmm. story basically of you know of what's going on you're like huh hmm, that's interesting and it's a real thing yeah and then and that is and that's sort of what happens also when we look at the situation in Leroy. it starts with one or two people and then it like catches on how can a psychological experience be contagious yeah. I don't know. We need a psychologist on here. <laughs> but, but like I was saying it before, like it's it kind happened. of that, that mob mentality thing. You know, one person gets angry, then another person gets angry, then another person gets angry. And it just kind of builds on that. Mm-hmm. And it's like, where did this all start from that one person, you know? And it's very interesting how it all begins, especially in this book, how it all, who I think begins it all, who, where it really kind of starts and when, um, what are, I don't know how to explain it, but it seems like one instance starts, but then somebody else really gets the ball rolling. Okay, and so I'd love to hear your opinion. Who do you see? Who do you see as that starting point? And then, yeah, who who gets that ball going? Well, okay, so in the beginning of the of, of uh, Ann Putnam's story, uh, Abigail Williams is complaining that Betty Paris is not getting up and doing her work of the chores. She's having to do double work, and Betty Paris is like, you know, in bed. Um, just sickly. She she's not. She doesn't have a fever. She doesn't. You know, but she's acting sickly, and she's very like she doesn't want to get up. She seems frightened a little bit, and you know, and Abigail Williams is just mad at her. And then the next thing you know, Abigail Williams has all of a sudden she's been bitten all over. She has all these whelps all over her, and you know, all these you know things, and she's just going nuts, you know, and and just is pointing fingers at everybody. And it seems like she's the one who really gets the accusations started. And Betty Paris doesn't really have much to say. At first, anyway, until she gets wrapped up into it. But it feels like, I don't know, I have theories of why Betty Paris was acting the way she was. Mm -hmm. Because of the way it was written, as far as, I don't know, this is because of the way it was written and the way I read into it. It seems to me that maybe she was, I don't think she was trying to get out of work. It seems like maybe she was scared of something. She was stressed out, which would be the conversion thing, um, about something else. And I read it. The way I read it, I don't know if I'm reading it wrong, it felt like some kind of maybe molestation thing might have been going on with her own father or something. But that's just what I read into it. I mean, that's that's my perception. I don't know. Yeah, and then I think Abigail that... Williams got into it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, Abigail Williams just 
she jumps on it and she's like, oh, this is a great out from having to do our, do our chores. Um, but yeah, I think I can see how you would pick up on that. I, I'm not sure if it is intended to be a molestation situation, but certainly I think an abusive situation. Mm-hmm. And we see Samuel Paris, Betty Paris's father, painted in a pretty negative light that he's got anger issues and also that he feels like the rest of Salem Village, that most of the people are against him. And all of that is feeding into his energy, what he's bringing into the household. And he's the patriarch, so he's at the top rung. You know, so he's kind of like, if something's happening to him, it's affecting the entire household. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's also, many people have theorized that he might have been a physically abusive person. Um... There is the situation with Tichuba who confesses, quote unquote, because <laughs> in many ways it seems forced out of her, um, but she confesses. And there is one account that says that uh, she said that she was beaten and threatened to be beaten by Samuel Paris, that she had to confess um, or she would be beaten further. So, you know, we'll be able to theorize that Betty, if she's around that energy, she could have been very scared of her father. And that, yeah, there could have been actual things happening in the household that she was trying to, in some ways, protect herself from mentally by shutting down. Um, I feel like we read something similar there, that Betty Paris seems to be the starting point and that maybe that really was like a true conversion disorder experience. And then it gets picked up on by other people and it kind of takes on a new life as it does. And then she gets wrapped up in that and kind of gets wrapped up in the hysteria of it all and it just she kind of just lets it happen and because hey if everybody's eyes are off of just me you know then it might be a good thing and then we can say hey and you know and this is making my father seem important in a way and maybe it's making him happy in a way you know because he kind of almost seems like he's owed something by the village in a way you know it just kind of seems like um they're just taking away my pay and you know they're you know they're trying to you know i don't know it just seems like he feels like he's been slighted the whole time yes and that is definitely creating the larger context of the salem witch trails going into it um and she pulls on those real historical facts he was not getting the pay that he was supposed to be getting there's disputes about whether or not he actually owns the parsonage where they live Um, People are not attending meeting as much, and they've stopped delivering his firewood, which was supposed to be part of his compensation. So all of that is in the background leading up to this. Um, And she even brings that in, too, about the firewood. Like, it's cold in the Paris household. Betty Paris is, like, wrapped up nice and warm. Abigail Williams wrapped up nice and warm in their trundle beds, um, not doing their chores, not moving around, right? So, yeah, all of that, all of that really comes into play. And then when Betty does actually name a witch, she does it at a moment when her father is really pushing her to do so, right? Putting that pressure on her. So could she in that moment have just been trying to protect herself um, and just be like, I'm just going to say what he wants me to say. Could she have actually convinced herself that she believed it? This girl also is only nine years old. She's still quite young. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, and you know, he is, he's like, tell us, tell us, tell us. And he's over and over. And they're just like, you know, leaning into her. And the, it seems like the first person she sees is Tituba. And she's like, her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I saw her shape and she came to me, you know, and 
It's like, and she's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what are she's you talking like, about? I, <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I yeah. love you. Why would I do that to you? She's like, she did it. She did it. You know, he's, try, he's trying to take it. I'm like, this, it makes me mad. I'm like, you can't believe you did that to somebody. You know, I just can't believe, even as a little girl, the age of like knowing right from wrong and good and evil, it's supposed to be up like to six years old, I think. And so by that point, she should have an idea that it is wrong to do that. And she did it anyway. But she's also maybe trying to protect herself. And that's mm-hmm. the first thing she could think of. You know, she doesn't know. She's a little kid. She doesn't know what else she can do. She doesn't know who to tell who would believe her, you know, or who would stop this guy from either hitting her or, or doing whatever he's doing to her. And because he's, you know, he's supposedly, you know, the town reverend or whatever. And you don't go against that because if you do that, you're going against God, you know, in that mentality type of thing so it just kind of seems like she's backed into a corner and she has to do something and I feel bad for her but I also am mad at her at the same time (laughs) it's kind of like what you know Reverend Green is asking um, Ann Putnam why didn't you say anything why didn't you say anything she's like I I couldn't because then we would get beaten or you know or people would see us as liars or you know everything all the consequences and I had to go along with it because otherwise it could have been turned on me, you know, that kind of thing. So I know I feel the same way with the afflicted girls where there's part I spend time trying to like understand what was happening to them, what was going on in their minds, even trying to be compassionate. And then at the same time, I get so angry at them. because I'm like, what? <laughs> what are you doing? And, you know, yeah, I get that. Um, and and Putnam does say that it's like she feels like at a certain point she can't backtrack but then 19 people are hanged because of it. You know, it spiraled so far out of control. And at no point do you say, hey, this isn't real. <laughs> we made it up. We yeah. made it up. Sorry. I mean, at this point, no one's going to listen. Because at some point, she's like, this story has gotten away from us. And now the adults control it. And now they're the ones perpetuating this lie not knowing or or knowing for sure because some of them some of the uh the women in the village are accusing other women they just don't like and you know and, and it's like well now you're making it worse and now it's not just her and it really wasn't Anne's fault to begin with she got roped into it after four other girls pulled her in so it was really those i would i'm gonna blame i personally would blame abigail williams for beginning the hysteria if it had just been uh, Betty Paris, she might have been able to figure, they might have been able to figure it out with her. But then Abigail Williams is like, oh, there's a witch and I've been bewitched. And then that's when the whole witchcraft stuff started. So Abigail Williams, I think, is the main culprit in this whole thing. And she's rotten somewhere in fiery hell. But <laughs> <laughs> in my view. Yeah. Because you just don't do that, kid. You just don't do it. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think Samuel Paris also is pretty guilty in this because I feel like he's one of the main adults and one of the first adults to take it over um, and to make suggestions also of witchcraft, right? He's planting some mm-hmm. of those seeds in their minds um, as an explanation for why they're feeling and experiencing what, what they are. Um, because, right, like a young young person, they can't feel what they feel. There must be some reason adult has to be able to know what's going on. And I feel like we see that kind of happening here with Reverend Paris, as well as the other parents as well. And as you mentioned, even um, people that they didn't like, Ann Putnam's mother becomes convinced, right? One of the witches, it must be Martha Corey, 
She doesn't like Martha Corey. So she creates all these like reasons why it would be her. And then it ends up being the afflicted girls who actually name her. But the idea has been put in their mind and they know like, okay, she's the next, basically the next easy target here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes me mad. I'm just like, I can't believe you do that to somebody. Just, I mean, and it's done today too. I mean, if you think about it, you know, we accuse people of certain things in, in politics in you know, oh, they said this, but that's not what they meant. But it doesn't matter. They said it, you know, it, and, you know, it, and people won't listen to reason. That's what's, it's kind of like the whole Facebook generation became like this witchcraft, Salem witchcraft trial, uh, you know, lists of accusers who just want to say, look at this meme, see what it says in this meme. But that's not the truth. This is not the truth. We don't care. This is all we see. And this is all we care about. And they don't care about the truth. They just want to know whatever is going to sensationalize and, you know, um, titillate their, their ego, you know, it's just, it doesn't matter. And so that's what it makes me mad that that's the human condition and that's what we do to each other, you know? Yeah. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I think we see a lot of parallels to today. And I think the fact that, you know, one of the most popular, um, fictionalized account of the Salem witch trials is the crucible, which is just as much about, the Red Scare and McCarthyism in America as it is about the witch trials, right? Because he saw it happening in his day. And we look back on it and we're like, oh, we see this happening again today. So it kind of brings me then to this other aspect I want to explore that we're moving through these timelines and we have the parallels of the past of the present. So do you think that it um, impacted your understanding of what happened in Salem by looking at it through this 2012 experience through Colleen and through her friends, right? Does it help us understand what happened in Salem? I think so. Um, especially like, when you're putting it, I mean, it looks different, obviously. It's not the complete, you know, no one's accusing anybody of witchcraft in the modern day aspect. They're just wondering what's going on. Why is everybody sick? Um, and they do that at the beginning of, you know, the Salem witch trials and everything. But it does seem like, okay, well, this girl gets sick. And then all of a sudden, these other girls get sick. And then more. And it's like every single time they mention girls getting sick, there's 13, there's 19, there's 25, there's 30. You're like, whoa, whoa, when did we jump to this number, you know? And that's where you kind of go, all right, what's going on? This can't be real. Some of this cannot be real. Some of it has to be, like, you know, jumping on the bandwagon type of thing, you know? Um, I do believe that some, you know, if you want to look at it as if this were a real story, you want to believe that the first group are the ones that were actually the real ones with the conversion, with the stress, with, you know, things they had to live up to and they just couldn't deal with it. And so it started coming out because when you look at somebody like our main character, Colleen, who has that same stress on her and she's constantly thinking about, I got I to get better grades than this one girl. I've got to become valedictorian. I've got to get into Harvard, you know, and she's worrying about all the things that are happening around her at the same time. Nothing happens to her for the longest time in this book until toward the very end where something actually does happen. And she starts to black out. She starts to uh, mess up her sentences where she's speaking, she says backwards, but it's out of order, really. Um, words and stuff are coming out of order. And, and she starts to realize this is real. This is a real thing. And then she's looking at other people and she's like, wait, but this all happened. And then she wants to believe it's witchcraft at one point in a way or some kind of spell or whatever. Um, that maybe one of her best friends is doing it to her, you know? Um, and so you're kind of like, whoa. So you can see how somebody can jump to a conclusion 
you know, like, wow, because there's no other explanation. I was fine until just now when I approached this person. And then all of a sudden, and it's like, well, no, you don't want to believe what's going on. And like they tell her, uh, you know, what is it called? Um, Dacus Razor or something? Oh, Occam's Razor. Uh, Okay, that's what that is. Sorry, I can't remember what it was. But yeah, um, I want to make it. It's, I make it sound like it's a Harry Potter spell. Yeah. Um, I come, but no. <laughs> um, but no, it's which the most simplest um, explanation is probably the right one, basically. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't want to believe it. She wants to believe the most outlandish explanation because that's the only way it could be, and that's exactly what happened in Salem, you know, and. Like well, it has to be this crazy. No, maybe it's not. Maybe it has something that's in her head. Oh no, that's that's gibberish. Nope, nope. It's got to be the devil. Like, wait, what? <laughs> Why are you jumping straight to the devil? You know. So it it does make you kind of go, oh, all right. Well, I could see how this could happen back then, especially if it could happen today. Which it, like I was saying before, it kind of does in a way in different aspects. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's also interesting that we see through Colleen's eyes her processing of all the different explanations could it be this could it be that and she's taking it seriously because it's her friends right Mm -hmm. the people that she knows and she's worried about them so she sees their experiences as real um and then once she comes to that idea of like well maybe they're actually faking it maybe everybody in salem was faking it and maybe what's happening right now people are faking it and as you said, she can't even hold on to that for that long. Then she jumps to another explanation. Because exactly, because she she gets to that faking it conclusion because, you know, she's assigned to read The Crucible and kind of compare it to actual events of Salem. And she starts going, wait, so Anne Putnam says that they were all faking it. Maybe that's what happened. And then all of a sudden she's visiting her friend and then she starts to have symptoms. And she's like, wait, that wasn't fake. I'm not faking it. Who's? Or is anybody faking it? Who's faking it? I don't know. It kind of creates more questions of what's actually going on. Who's faking it? Who's not? If anybody is, you know, and it just kind of makes a hysteria, I guess. Yeah. And if we look at it, if we use conversion disorder as an explanation, it it it, it means that the girls weren't necessarily faking it we still don't have a solid answer and we don't know for each person were some girls faking it were some girls not were some of them faking it at certain points and other times it was real right there's still this uncertainty about it um i wanted to share and i wrote down this moment it's flashing back let me find the quote This moment where we flash back and they're in the meeting house. So we're back in Salem. And it says, Abby screams and we all join in. A pleasurable and horrible echoing in the meeting house. And it feels so good, the screaming. Letting out all the fear and recrimination and frustration we carry around day to day. So she's screaming and... She's not saying that she's bewitched and that's making her scream, but it's like you have this expression of all the pressure that she's been feeling coming out through that scream. So the scream itself is real, right? But Mm -hmm. it's everybody else sees it as witchcraft. And when we look back on it now, it's like, well, that scream got, you know, 19 people hanged ultimately. 
Right. Um, and I feel like we par- see parallels around the same part of the book where when Colleen starts to have her own afflictions, right, how real it feels to her, right? And if right. something is psychological, doesn't mean that it's fake. It's just not what everybody thinks it is. It's not the HPV vaccine. It's not... <laughs> Something well, it in becomes the water. fake when you willingly, you know, you're making up a story. You know what I mean? And that's where it becomes bad. So you could start off as fake and it becomes a psychological thing. Like, you know, you've convinced yourself that something is real. And then it becomes the psychological conversion in a way, you know. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the screaming part of it, it's kind of like when you, you burst out crying and it makes you feel better, you know. Because you get all, you've made it physical. You've made it. You've gotten it out of your body in a way. It's kind of a cleanse, in a sort, you know. So I kind of that's real, you know. She's getting out that stress, like ah, just getting it out, screaming. People do it all the time. That's part of therapy nowadays, you know. Um, so that I believe that's real, and I believe that the stress part is real. It's sometimes what led up to getting to that point could have been faked, and then it became it manifested into something real in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we also, it's revealed to us that they're biting their own arms <laughs> to show, right. like, bite marks from And she even says, I think Betty bit her arm and Abigail bit Betty's arm to make it look like different teeth or something, yeah. I guess. And it's like, what? <laughs> How can they not tell those are teeth marks? <laughs> How can these people not tell these welts are teeth marks? <laughs> so it does, we've, we've been coming around this question um, but does the conversion theory, do you think it works as an explanation for the afflictions behind the trials? Only partly. Um, like, like I said before, I think Betty Paris definitely had it. Um, and the rest kind of sounds like opportunistic children wanting to get attention and to get out of work. Um, because it's like you said, you know, if you think about it, 1700s 1800s it, women even now but still up until nowadays till modern times women have been overlooked looked at as you know you know shut up and just bear the children clean the house and you know do all the you know all the the grind work and and it's kind of like well I don't have to do that right now I can be the celebrity you know and that's what if you look at it if you kind of look at what happens with Clara and with the other Jennifer and Elizabeth, um, that ends up happening to them. They become celebrities, basically. They go on the talk show nowadays, you know, and it's kind of like, well, did it happen? Well, it doesn't mean that it didn't happen at first, but then somebody got the ball rolling to where maybe it became a little bit more than it should have been, and it became, oh, well, and now she she notices Colleen's watching them on TV. Oh, she's not crying out and screaming, and she's not vibrating and twitching. And look, that girl can walk now. And she wasn't able to walk before. And it's all of a sudden, well, because they're not around here. It's like, uh, is that it? Is that really it, you know? Or is it because now they're getting the attention? Now they just suddenly have been healed themselves, you know? It's kind of like, what part of it, where does the ailment end and, you know, the opportunistic side take over and vice versa? You know, it's kind of like, hmm, it kind of makes it, it explains a lot if you look at it through that, those eyes of today and how you can, I'll just give you my own example. Um, when I was a kid, I, I don't know what it was, I guess I was just a stressed kid and I would have stomach cramps out of nowhere. And when I got into uh, college, I was having a lot of stomach cramps and I was, you know, my first time out of away from home for so long. 
I wasn't very particularly good at school and, you know, I was stressed out about that. You know, I, I look back and I go, wow, you know, and they kept telling me it was irritable bowel syndrome and which they call the pandas, that whole thing. They said, well, that's just kind of a catch-all term, you know, for different yeah. things that it could be. And that's exactly what irritable, irritable bowel syndrome is. It's not really a diagnosis. It's a syndrome. A syndrome is, you know, just something they can't really explain. And so they're like, well, and then eventually I got worse and worse. And then I ended up losing a lot of weight. And then it became something real. I don't know if I manifested that from the stress, which it possibly could have happened, or if it was just stress just sped up the process of what was happening to me, you know, and I ended up with Crohn's disease and I ended up having to have surgery and, you know, getting some of my stomach parts removed. And, uh, and, you know, and then for years after that, I would have stomach cramps still and stuff. And nowadays I don't because I've, I don't know if it's because I'm so far removed or if the stress level of that has gone away, you know, it's kind of like, well, where did it end and where did it begin? Kind of, you know, was it real? Was it not? Was there a real ailment going on? And maybe mentally I made it worse or so it kind of, it, it makes more questions happen. Yeah. <laughs> it offers up more questions and it causes more doubt. Um, so when you look at it through these eyes, that's what it does for me. It looks, you know, oh, wow. Well, maybe, well, maybe, you know, it's not a definite, well, it was witches. It was totally witches and it was the devil. You know, it was like, oh, there's something going on upstairs that's maybe not right. And it might be affecting them physically because I understand that completely from my point of view. Yeah. And I think I think many of us have experienced in some way that we've converted stress into something. And it could be something as simple as your eye twitching a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, or like it doesn't happen to me anymore. But years ago, if I was uh, very busy under a lot of stress, I would get oral migraines, which is where you don't get the headache part. But you visually, basically, my, my vision for like 20 minutes would be distorted and I wouldn't be able to really like do anything. Uh, one like time you I get was, like a bunch of floaters in your eye type yeah, of thing? Yeah, it's like wavy, like wavy lines and like the colors kind of shift. I mean, it was definitely not an acid flashback because <laughs> 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 I, looked, I looked into it. It was like a real thing that happens. Um, and for many people, it's a precursor to a full-fledged migraine where you get a headache. But I just, for some reason, never hit the headache stage, thankfully. Um, but it would happen to me, and it would force me, no matter what was going on, I'd have to just sit down. I'd have to lay down. And it was almost like my body was just like, okay, like, that's enough. I can't take, you know, going anymore. And that's how it reacted. So I think we've all probably, some people get ulcers. I mean, some people push things down so much that it becomes chronic pain that it could even become cancer, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think our bodies are do respond a lot to what's going on in our minds. Sometimes we don't even realize that it's happening. Yeah, and, you know, sometimes you can, you can um, they say that you can kind of manifest health in yourself as well. Like, you're mm-hmm. just like, I'm just going to not get sick. I'm just not going to, and then you don't. You just don't get sick. I'm not a sickly person. I'm not going to get sick. And you don't, or you very rarely do. Or if it's something very small, you know, you get a small cold and it's gone. This past couple years, I'm like, I'm not going to get COVID. I'm just not. It's not going to happen. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I'm covering my mouth. I'm washing my hands. I'm using all the, you know, hand sanitizer. I'm not going and standing around people. I'm like, no, no, no. You back up six feet. (laughs) You know, it's not going to happen for me. And I'm not, you know, knock on wood. um, I'm not going to say that it's 100%. I might might have had it. I don't know. I didn't feel the symptoms. If I did, I might have had a headache one day. But that could have been stress. You know, you never know. 
So, you know, and I haven't had a cold in the past few years, or if I've had it, it's been like for a few hours and then it's gone. Maybe woke up with some congestion and then it, it went away. Um, so it's kind of like maybe it really does make you think our mental state really does control our physical state a lot of times, you know, and you don't really you don't put much we don't put much emphasis on it and we should. And, you know, as far as a mental health perspective, which this is really a good, you know, indicator like, hey, we need to watch our mental health, kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because this stress could kill you or it could do some bad things to you, make you look freakish, you know. Yeah. And and it's going to it's gonna get you at some point if you don't check in every once in a while, you know, check in with yourself, check in with somebody else, whatever. But, be, you know, I try to be honest with myself about how I'm really feeling, you know, and why I'm feeling that way, you know. And, you know, sometimes I do daily affirmations like I'm going to be good. Everything's going to be great today, you know. I'm going to be a lot better than I was yesterday, that kind of thing. And it's the best thing you can do. Um, but, yeah, I just – I think that, yeah, the mental health aspect of it all is really what's what's – if you think about it, there was no such thing as, like, really psychologists and stuff like that back in the day of saying, if they had them, they might not – this might not have happened. Yeah. You know what I mean? If they had a safe space to go talk to somebody, like, my dad abuses me. And – you know, and then they might have felt better after that. You know, just talking to one person can help you feel a lot better, you know, yeah. even if no one else knows. And they weren't able to do that. Yeah. These so. girls were largely invisible in their society. Exactly. They, nobody really paid attention to them. Um, and something, you know, we don't get in the book, when you start to look at each person, each afflicted girl's experience, you start to see how there might be different reasons why they would. Um, be reacting this way so some girls especially as things unfold um, had been traumatized deeply traumatized from warfare that was occurring with indigenous people so uh, some of them had lost their families they were orphans they had actually seen their families get killed at a young age or they'd been transported from place to place or they're in a town um, I think it's you know I think this comes up actually. I might have mentioned this on the podcast recently or um, on the social media accounts, but like Elizabeth Hubbard, she's 17 years old, right? And she's a servant. Mary Warren is a servant. And if they don't get, they don't have any money, if they don't get married, and there's a shortage of men in Salem Village at this time, if they don't get married, they're facing a life of domestic servitude. That's really like their only option. So they're feeling that kind of pressure the same way that Colleen Rowley is feeling the pressure about, I need to get into a good college. I need to become valedictorian. Um, the only difference is that in the present day unfolding that nobody gets murdered, <laughs> right? <laughs> nobody hangs. Yeah. Basically, they just give them some antidepressants and it's like, okay, like now you have to like rest and let go of some of that stuff and have somebody to talk to and all those things that you mentioned right but they didn't have that in the past and that's that's where it where it got us the one other thing i wanted to uh mention is when we look at things through ann putnam's eyes and this came to my mind earlier and i forgot to to highlight it while she's talking to the reverend she starts to feel like bask in the glow of someone paying attention to her and she makes a comment like she knows how dangerous that feeling can be because that is part of her driving force back during the trials as well. Um, I think that's just important to remember. Like these girls never experienced that. Nobody cared 
in a way that made them feel like they were noticed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then she even like steps over the line at one point and kisses the guy. <laughs> like, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, yeah, that part was like, up. wait. But I think he kind of understands yeah. because what she's told him so far, he's like, I understand, you know, but back off. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to end our conversation with a little pop culture exploration um, about who might play these main characters if this was made into a television series or a movie or anything. Um, before we sort of leave uh, the past behind, so to speak, I wanted to share a quote from the end of the book from the author's note, because I think it really summarizes a lot of what we can gain from looking at this book conversion. All right. She says, it bears considering why adolescent girls living at the dawn of the 21st century with all of its technological, medical, and social advances would still be under so much stress that their bodies quite literally cannot take it. We look at the afflicted girls during the Salem panic and want very much for there to be one rational explanation for their behavior. Were they faking? Was it moldy bread, the 17th century equivalent of environmental factors? Were they crazy? Part of our desire to identify the one true explanation of the Salem witch trials is that we have moved beyond hysteria. If we can consign the Salem episode safely to the past, then such a bizarre, inexplicable, potentially murderous panic can never happen again. But it just did. That is some insight from Catherine Howe. And yeah, now we can move on. I know we both enjoy pop culture. Um, I did oh, yeah. not spend as much time coming up with my list of people as I wanted to, but I have some ideas, and I know you are ready to go on this. I have quite a few people listed awesome. out, like characters listed here. So. Excellent. <laughs> like, oh, excellent. I, I love to visualize com, you know, common or current actors and actresses mm-hmm. in my head when I'm reading things. It just helps me with my visualization yeah. of what's going on, so... Great. Um, so do you want to kick it off with one of our first characters? Sure. I'm going to go with Ann Putnam Jr. Okay. first. Um, I went with Violet, Brin- it's not Violet. <laughs> Violet Brinson, who plays the character Stella on Walker, okay, the new I'm gonna Walker, look Texas her. Ranger. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Violet? Brinson. B-R-I-N-S-O-N. But yeah, she's on okay. Walker, the the new Walker, Texas Ranch. She plays Walker's daughter. She's a redhead. Excellent. And she's in her early 20s, but I feel like she could probably play a little older if she wanted to. You know, she has that kind of look mm-hmm. that she can kind of go young and older. Perfect. Um, yeah. Who do you have for, for, for Ann Putnam, Putnam Jr.? Okay. So I also was reaching back in time and just kind of letting like people at different um, periods of time. For some reason, I've always imagined Ann Putnam Jr. like Amanda Bynes. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, like, I could kind of see it, I guess. Like, the way that she looks, something about her, I feel like, I feel like it could just, could That kind of doe-wide, like, huh? Yeah, that kind of, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Old I, Amanda Bynes, obviously. Yeah, it just came to me. So, yes, Amanda Bynes was my Ann Putnam Jr. And then I realized that most of the people that I was casting, I basically was doing, like, all the present-day characters and not the ones from the Salem Witch Trials for some reason. So that's, like, my main person from, from the past. <laughs> well, the other person I took from the past was Reverend Green, the one she was. I didn't do anybody from, like, her childhood days okay. or anybody, like, n- none of those. But Reverend Green I put as Taryn Egerton. Oh, I don't know who that one is either. Taryn Egerton it plays Eggsy in the um, 
the oh my goodness, why did I just forget the name of this? Um, <laughs> the Secret Service. What is it called? Kingsman. Uh, Kingsman. The Secret Service. Yes. Yeah. Kingsman. He plays Eggsy and Kingsman, and he also plays the gorilla in the Sing movies, Sing One and Sing Two. Okay. Um, he's been yeah. in a lot of stuff. He, he was he was Elton John in the Elton John biopic that came out oh, a few years ago. That he's that, awesome. Yeah, that movie. Oh, I see Rocketman. Yeah, I that was a really good movie, and he was excellent in that role. I was like, he looks familiar. Where do I know him from? <laughs> and it's rumored he might be getting beefed up to play Wolverine, the next Wolverine. Oh, so cool. We'll see. Nice. Yeah. Okay, so he's our Reverend Green. Excellent. I just kind of see it. He's in his, he's like early 30s. Yeah. You know, I can kind of see that. Yeah. So um, we've, then we've got him for Reverend Green, um, Violet as the like older Ann Putnam, and Amanda Bynes as young Ann Putnam. <laughs> <laughs> we can go with that. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Who so, did you have for Colleen? Okay. Colleen is literally, I could not come, I was like racking my brain trying to come up with someone because when I visualized her in my mind, all I see is a Colleen that I went to high school with, <laughs> like, who actually I realized, and that's how I've seen her every time I read this book, and I was reading it, and I was like, does she have dark, curly hair? Because in my mind, it's long, and it's brown, and I was like, oh my god, I'm visualizing her as Colleen from high school. So, I'm sorry, I failed on Colleen Rowley. <laughs> oh, I do that too, though. Yeah. See, they'll describe a character to me, and I'm like, that's new who I see this. I go based off the personality yeah. and everything, so I don't really yeah. go based off... And I'm sure people could dye their hair and whatnot, whatever. But um, for Colleen, I went with McKenna Grace. Now, McKenna Grace played Phoebe in Ghostbusters Afterlife, the younger sister. And she was also, she plays a lot of younger characters. She played young Carol Danvers in Captain Marvel. She played young Caroline from Vampire Diaries. She played young Emma in Once Upon a Time. She played young Sabrina in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Um, she played a lot of those characters. She's in a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I think she'd be really good. I think she's like 16 or 17. Now. Okay. So, so then she'd perfect. be about around the yeah. right age. Yes. Um, Excellent. But yeah. And then for Emma, I had Amelia Jones, who plays Kinsey on Lock and Key. And she's also the, the, um, the hearing daughter in that movie on Apple, CODA. It's, uh, CODA stands for Child of Death Adults. Okay. Um, and which has gotten a lot of, you know, acclaim. Oh my God, you're it. so much better at being up to date on <laughs> current actors. I watch a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's why I had to add, add the and watch yeah. <laughs> to my, my show title. I watch a lot of stuff. Yeah. I didn't realize how much I watch until, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you, who'd you have for Emma? For Emma, again, I went to the past um, and was visualizing like a Claire Danes from Romeo and Juliet era. Oh, yeah. um, because I feel like she has that kind of like ethereal, like softness to her, but could turn on the emotion that Emma ends up um, exuding towards the, the end of the book. So, yeah, that's how I visualized her. But yeah, you'd have to definitely that. dye her hair white blonde and her eyebrows, apparently, too. <laughs> <laughs> white blonde. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, I kind of went with more of a dirty blonde look in my yeah. mind. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, you know, that's just how. That's how I saw it. Any other um, of the the main characters? Did you go for? Yeah, um, I thought of Dina. Could be uh, Priya Ferguson, who plays Lucas's little sister Erica on Stranger Things. Oh, okay. She's about that right age nowadays. I cool. just kind of saw that. I don't see her in enough stuff. She got her big break on Stranger Things, and it just seems like that could be. A good fit because she kind of has yes. that 
smart aleck, but really nice kind of, uh, you know, approach about her. I don't know. Um, I no, think she's perfect because everyone I was thinking of wasn't the right fit and I couldn't, I, I like your choice. She's perfect. Yeah. Um, and then I went to Anjali and I said, I thought of my, my Treyi, um, how do you say her name? Maitreya Ramakrishnan. Maitreya? From Never Have I Ever? Yes, that's who I went with with her. I was, I floated her too. And then I was also thinking about her friend, the one other like Indian girl who moves to her school as another option. Um, It was kind of like playing back and forth, like which one personality wise would would work better for Anjali. Yeah. Um, I also went with Father Malloy. I went with Bill Hader. Oh, you did? Oh my God, that's great. I didn't cast him. <laughs> he's supposed to be like 40-ish something in his early 40s. I was like, well, he wouldn't be great. In my head, he's supposed to be great. But I'm like, but that's me as a teenager looking at an older figure. So I'm thinking, who would be 40-ish now? Who could be this character? And he's kind of he's kind of got authority, but he's also kind of wimpy at the same time. Mm-hmm. I see him, and I'm like, Bill Hader is totally that way to me. You yeah. Know? And you kind of like him, but you don't. I don't know. Um, uh, and Okay, so I have some other people, too. Uh, Clara. I don't know if you cast Clara. I did not. Okay, I went with Olivia Rodrigo. Okay. Yeah. Popular girl, you know, yes. just kind of, you know, um, I've seen her a lot on High School Musical, mm-hmm. the series. So, and uh, I just thought she might be good for that part. But another person I went with, I was going with Jennifer Crawford, which was not the other Jennifer, the main Jennifer, I guess you would say, the one with the pink hair. And although I've never seen her with pink hair, she, she still manifest this character to me and that'd be danielle rose russell who plays hope on legacies and the originals um klaus's daughter basically i don't know if you ever watched any of those but uh the spinoff of the vampire diaries oh okay um yeah so she's the lead character on legacies basically she kind of has this kind of i'm a tough girl but i could be really nice type of thing about her um that's kind of what Jennifer Crawford gives to me. You know, she's kind of tough, but at the same time, she's kind of like, she's not really that bad. Yeah. Once you get to know her more. Um, And then, okay. And then I went to Nurse Hawking and I cast Bryce Dallas Howard. That's, that's Ron Howard's daughter. She played at a lot of stuff. She's in the current like Jurassic World movies. Um, She's also. Oh, uh, of course. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I can definitely, I could see her as the nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Nurse Hawking, and you're like, oh, I'm not a little opportunistic. Um, for Tad Mitchell, Mr. Mitchell, who leaves, who's younger, an, a younger teacher, uh, Noah Centineo, um, the love interest from All the Boys I Love to All the Boys I Loved Before. I don't know if you've watched that or not. Um, he was supposed to be cast as He Man for a little while there, mm, but okay. I kind of see him. Um, he's in his mid to late 20s now. Miss um, Slater, I went with Kat Dennings. Oh my god, that is perfect, actually. I think she would be great in that role. Kind of funny, but not at the same time, you know? Yeah, yes. Sarcastic. I can and, see that. Um, I didn't cast Jason, because I don't know, I just couldn't think of him. Uh, there was a character I thought of, he's he's a Jewish kid, obviously, It's per, per his last name. And the only thing I could think of was this character from High School Musical, the series again, which is, his name is Larry Saperstein, mm-hmm. and he's a redhead. And he's really pale. And I'm like, that would just kind of seem like the way he taught the yo boy thing. I thought that would be kind of funny. Yeah. Because that would not fit him at all. But right. it might be funny. But that's the only thing I could think of. The whole yo boy thing, it was bringing me back to the characters of like um, 
uh, and can't hardly wait. Seth Green's character mm-hmm. kind of has that quality to him. And then in Mean Girls, uh, Kevin G. Mm-hmm. Also, yeah. you know, where he's like, oh, like, you know, he's kind of putting on this this role of. Yeah. So. But yeah, it was hard to cast for the yo boy for sure. And then anyone who's left, uh, I guess there's her love interest. Spence. Colleen Spence, yes. Yeah, I said another High School Musical one, Joshua Bassett. Um, Joshua Bassett, he's also going to be in the upcoming, uh, it'll be out on the 1st of April. It's uh, Better Nathan Ever. Okay. He plays the older brother. But Joshua Bassett, he's he's actually Olivia Rodrigo's Um, (laughs) ex-boyfriend. But I think he might be, he kind of has that kind of charming boy next door Mm -hmm. thing about him. But also, can I trust him? I don't know. Yeah. Um, And I had two more. Two more I have left. T.J. Wadsworth, the local reporter, I put as Tiana Paris, who plays Monica Rambeau in WandaVision and upcoming The Marvels, um, which is a Captain Marvel spinoff. What's her name? I just watched WandaVision. Tiana Paris. Um, she played Monica Rambeau. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I can see that. and that's another witch show. Yeah, so exactly. Think about it. Um, <laughs> it's perfect, actually. And the other person would be Beth- Bethany Witherspoon, who's the Aaron Brockovich character. Yeah, has to be played by Julia Roberts. I know, right? Yeah, just has to be. Just that's kind of a throwback. You know, you just have to do that. We agree on that. Um, it has to be because she played Aaron Brockovich. I mean, it's perfect. It's <laughs> good. Good tie-in there. Yeah. But yeah, that's my casting choices for the TV show or movie. <laughs> Cool. Well, thank you so much for um, casting basically everybody. I was like, oh, this will be a fun thing, and I'm writing, and I'm thinking, and I'm trying to figure it out, but I feel like you really hit that one out of the park, so (laughs) I appreciate it. You're welcome. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So as we wrap things up, is there any final thoughts you have on conversion or any questions for me about any, like, the historical aspects or anything, really? A couple things. Um, Um. I wanted to ask about, okay, so Abby Williams and Mary Warren, were they indentured servants? No, they wouldn't have been indentured servants. I, they would, because if you're an indentured servant, you basically have a contract that you're, like, working to pay off. Um, mm-hmm. So they're basically servants because they don't have other options. Um, they're basically kind of, are they like foster kids in a way, but they're made to be servants? That's that's closer okay. to it, yes. Um, okay, yeah. that's what I was wondering. I was like, why are they living there? They don't have the same last name, but I don't understand. I thought maybe their family was indentured, and so they for, therefore they had to go do stuff too, and you know. Yeah, so I what know we know, sure. Abigail Williams is often referred to as um, Samuel Paris's niece and Betty Paris's cousin, but we don't actually know what the family relation is. Or exactly mm-hmm. when she shows up at their household. Um, so my understanding is that she she moves in with them and she has to earn her keep, really, to stay. So she's serving in the house. And then Mary Warren, uh, she's a bit older. And for her, she is a is a li- basically a live-in servant. Um, and again, like, if she doesn't find a husband, get married, or find some other way to get money, which mm-hmm. would be really hard, she's basically looking at a lifetime of domestic servitude. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing I had to ask was, why was everybody, all the women, goody something? What was that about? Yeah, it's basically just a title um, that you would say, like, Ms. So or Mrs. Ms. Yeah. So, okay. just to... I just thought yeah. it was weird, because I know they, well, they called, you know, Goodman somebody that would mm-hmm. be the man. 
instead of Mister, and they would call them goody. Which I guess would be good woman. I guess yeah, good woman, um, good wife. Um, good wife. That's yeah, right. and then just turn it to goody. It kept throwing me off. I was like, why are they calling them? Is that their name? And then wait, that's not her name. Everybody else is named Goody now. What's going? I don't understand. But yeah, so that was something that kind of threw me off. But other than that, just yeah, the mental health aspect of it all was what I was really focused on, and I was really enthralled with because I love psychology, you know, and I love how why we do the things we do. And this was a really good insight into maybe why things went down the way they did in Salem. So I really liked that. I really enjoyed it. So thank you for, you know, exposing me to this book and, you know, and uh, let me talk about it with you because I thought it was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Um, to listeners, be sure you check out Dustin's podcast. Dustin can read and watch. <laughs> and where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Dustin underscore Holden or on Instagram at Dustin can read. And I'm pretty much on there all the time, which I shouldn't be because it's bad for my mental health. So <laughs> most of the time you can find me there, though. Excellent. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much to Dustin Holden of Dustin Can Read and Watch. Listeners, be sure to go check out his podcast and also follow Dustin on Twitter and Instagram. It was truly a pleasure to have this discussion, to get a chance to just go in depth about one of my favorite Salem-related books. And if you haven't yet read Conversion by Katherine Howe, go take it out from your local library, go buy a copy of it, download it, whatever, get your hands on it, give it a read, and let me know what you think. All right, thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you all soon. Thank you.